The preaching of God's Word then is found in Psalm 80 from verse 14 and onward. Psalm 80, verses 14 and following. Return, we beseech Thee, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and behold and visit this vine and the vineyard which Thy right hand hath planted and the branch that Thou madest strong for Thyself. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of Thy countenance. Let Thy hand be upon the man of Thy right hand, upon the Son of Man, whom Thou madest strong for Thyself, so will not we go back from Thee. Quicken us, and we will call upon Thy name. Turn us again, O Lord God of hosts. Cause Thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Throughout the Scriptures, we see that there are seasons that call for the church, that are open testimonies to the church for her to humble herself, to acknowledge the sins of the day, both in the world but also in the church, and to cry out to God for His returned and renewed blessings, such as before us in Psalm 80. The context of the psalm is one of remembering former days, but grieving over the present day. Present day, though there is a people of God and His ordinances to some extent administered, is a day of little, if any, power. And so it is that the enemies are laughing at the cause of Christ. And as in other Psalms, the kings of the earth do bind themselves together against Jehovah and against His anointed. And such seasons, when they are discerned, demand that the church would humble herself because the power of the church is not in the church. The power of the church is in God. Remember various historical times when uh, the the Ark of the Covenant was taken, which symbolized to the Old Testament people the presence of God. And it's not as if God Himself, as essentially considered, had withdrawn Himself, for that's impossible. But He had withdrawn the felt sense and the owning of His Word with blessing, such that then it was able to be pronounced Ichabod. The glory has departed. It's not that the church had ceased. It's not even that prophets had stopped. It's not that ordinances were gone. But the Lord had visibly and sensibly withdrawn the power of His blessing. And We see things like that in our own day. Our own General Assembly has called for a day of humiliation. Some have already observed this. We today are doing the same. And among the causes they've noted is a diminishing, even a rapid diminishing of righteousness. Men and women in this congregation can think back to their childhood and be amazed at what is publicly celebrated openly throughout the streets of our own nation. Things that would never have entered the thought of men and women in just 20 to 30, and if we go back 40, 50, 60 years, unthinkable things which are now publicly displayed, which have great attention and support, and are celebrated with months and with days and with great honor and fanfare. Surely it is not an overstatement to say that it is rapidly diminishing Moreover, they note that there is powerlessness in the church's witness. 
And we think of this. There are seasons when powerful preaching would seem to go forward, and yet it's met with so little more than the stirring of a temporary affection. And yet even God's people go largely unchanged. There are struggling congregations, and it's not only in our own denomination, but others. As we see that this is no little thing, when a congregation, which is a lampstand, as Christ calls it, appointed by Christ to shine the light of Christ to the world, when congregations shudder and close down, there is the quenching of light that once was shining is no longer shining forth. There is short supply, particularly in our own denomination, of qualified godly ministers, and we could multiply that to elders and deacons, the officers of the church. But we could step back and say, is this really the case? Like, is this just piety that is trying to uh, uh, perform in front of others? Well, just for a moment, though there are many ways we could assess the state of things, think in very briefly before taking up this text more fully, firstly think of the religious scene in the United States. So, based on a sound polling, in 2021, there were roughly 258 million adults, simply stated 18 plus, 258 million. Of that 258 million, 60% identify as Christian of any sort. We may say, well, that's a majority, and it is. But Christian of any sort includes Mormons. Christian of any sort includes United Pentecostals, uh, non-Trinitarians, Christian of any sort includes anyone according to their whim, according to their fancy, saying, I'm a Christian. And you know by your own experience how many people say, well, I'm fine, I'm a Christian. And their shadow never darkens any room where Christians assemble. So this percentage is not all that encouraging. Moreover, of that 258 million adults, 40% of them identified as Protestants. And we may say, well, that's not bad. And surely as a raw percentage, that's significant. But this includes liberal Protestants who deny the Trinity, who deny Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life, who open their doors with celebrations to all manner of immorality and other such things. And here's a telling statistic. 50% of this Protestant group attend church at least one time per month. Now, however else we assess Christianity, surely Christianity is the assembly of a worshiping people. And 50% of that 40% of self-identified Protestants only go to church at least once a month. Brethren, just roughly, that means two out of ten United States adults attend any Protestant church one time per month. And that's including the flaming liberal churches. Two out of ten adults that you meet in the streets, statistically, as far as our nation is concerned, are going to a Protestant church once a month. What is more telling is this. Three out of ten adults in the United States self-identified as atheist, agnostic, or nothing as far as religious concern. 
So think of that for a moment. Two out of ten go to a Protestant church at least once a month. Three out of ten identify as atheist, agnostic, or religiously nothing. And all of a sudden you see in our own nation, statistically speaking, we are the minority. We're not a majority. There's all the talk about conservatism and everything else. And surely there is a form that can be acknowledged as far as natural law still has an influence upon society. We acknowledge that Mormons, outwardly speaking, have a morality as far as concerns simple things between men and women. And yet as far as the simple and most basic test, do you go to a Protestant church at least once a month? Two out of ten adults meet that criteria. Well, what about the free church? Just as a little bit of background, in 1843 at the disruption, there were over 450 and those numbers were raised to about 500 ministers that were full subscription, earnest preaching, piety cultivated, uh, going forth to the missions. You'll remember that the first financial commitment of the free church recently constituted was to foreign missions, evangelistic, missionary fervor. You know the stories of McShane and Andrew Bonner as they go forth into the land of the Jews uh, just before the disruption. There's earnestness in these things. So these aren't just numbers, but these are representative of earnest ministers. Well, in 1925, after a season of decay, and yet likewise revival, our own church had 91 ministers, 170 congregations. And this in Scotland. So you think of Scotland in no way being pejorative, but roughly the size of a moderately sized state in the United States. 91 ministers is significant. How happy would we be if in Missouri we had 91 ministers of the gospel in the free church? Pick the state, it doesn't matter. If we had 91 ministers in Texas, in California, in Alaska, we would be glad and rejoicing in those things. Purity of worship exercised, experimental piety, missionary fervor, what of today? So roughly 100 years after this 1925 mark, today in our denomination there are roughly 43 ministers, including United States, 15 of those 43 ministers are retired. There are roughly 40 congregations, including the United States, of which 11 are vacant. This means there are roughly 29 congregations that have regular, stated, pastoral care. This doesn't mean that the others don't have preaching. We have retired ministers that labor earnestly. But the point is, they're retired for a reason. They are aging And there is a day coming swiftly upon our church when it is that many of these will be rushed home unto glory. And here is the concerning thing. We have roughly one or two theological students in our seminary currently being trained. These are difficult times. We could switch back to America and say, well, at Scotland, Scotland is more advanced in its secularism, and that's admitted. You know, they come and visit and they rejoice over what they see. At least there's a public display of Christianity. But think of this for a moment. A recent survey of confessing Reformed churches. So this would be 
OPC, PCA, HRC, RPCNA. These aren't, you know, just broad evangelical. These are uh, Presbyterian and Reformed churches of the United States. It's not an exhaustive, but it's a representative sample. Think of these following notices. 60% of Reformed churches allow for some use of religious images in various ways. Not always in public worship, but nonetheless using religious imagery. 80% of Reformed churches in the United States, as represented by this survey, observe man-made holidays. 90% use instruments in worship. 65% use uninspired praise. With reference to the fourth commandment, 70%, get that in your mind, 70% of Reformed churches permit recreation and unnecessary work on the Sabbath day. 70% of the best that the United States has to offer is permitting the open defiling of the fourth commandment. Now, brethren, these will differ as to how egregious it is, but these are self-reporting pastors of self-confessing Reformed churches. These aren't liberal churches. These aren't those who just say, well, I'm Reformed. They have the confession of faith. They have the three forms of unity. They're seen and acknowledged as Reformed, confessional, Presbyterian. The point is this, brethren. Our day, though highly privileged with avenues of support, increase, and other encouragements, conversions here, church planning there, when you step back and survey the face of the church, how can we not say that the glory is departed. How can we not see that it's not just us who feel it? It is throughout the church. And then when you entertain all of what's going on in other churches, it's overwhelming. Someone says, time up, but the Gospel's preached. And we with Paul rejoice that even unbelievers would preach the Gospel. But we're not to take our concern from the so what the but this. Remember that Nadab and Abihu, in the fervor of religious excitement, stood before the Lord and offered not what was forbidden, but what was not commanded. And the Lord struck them dead. Remember Uzzah as the ark is being carted without respect to God's command. And the ox stumble and the ark begins to fall. And out of instinct and respect, he puts his hand to steady the ark. He's struck dead. Here's the point. We have become accustomed to compromise. We have become fine with open irreverence to God. And it's our need to have our eyes opened that we would better perceive just how bad it is. But this is not to drive us down, to leave us in discouragement, but rather, as the psalmist here, it's to sober us to see this. It's not with man. It's not with a new student. It's not with five new students. It's not with a younger ministry. It's not with more congregations. Our need is so beyond what man can perform. It's so beyond the multiplying of conferences. It's so beyond the multiplying of publications, though these can be used of the Lord. Our fundamental need is that God Himself in mercy would turn us. Because think of what 
would happen if for the sake of the argument, one in ten United States adults who were truly Protestant, evangelical, started denying themselves, giving attention to God's Word, submitting their doctrine, worship, practice, government to it, what would then start to happen in the church? These are great things, should the Lord bless. Well, notice we're not without hope. Our text holds that quite clearly before us. God is seen to have withdrawn, but now He's being sought. The church is overwhelmed and cast down, but they have hope, and that hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider then, firstly, that there is a pleasant memory, which secondly leads to a present misery, and thirdly, brings forth a desired mercy. So a pleasant memory, a present misery, and a desired mercy. It is a good thing to remember the works of the Lord. In fact, when our souls are downcast, the Scriptures cultivate within us. As we sing the Psalms, I will remember the works of the Lord. And it's good for us. Well, this Psalm does that. Notice this pleasant memory hearkens back to the establishing of the church of God, particularly as it was brought out of Egypt and into the promised land. So, in verse 15, we read of uh, the, the vineyard which thy right hand hath planted. Well, this goes back, of course, to verse 8. Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. And we, as older or younger, read with wonder the work of God, which is impossible apart from His mercy. So you think of all that God did in Egypt, the plagues that were brought forth, the deliverance of God's people, the separating of the Red Sea, the causing of His people to pass through, sustaining them through the wilderness day by day with manna, a pillar of fire by night, a pillar of cloud by day, all of this going on, while, by the way, putting up with the grumblings and complainings and the inconsistencies of God's people, their sins and rebellions, and yet God brings them and plants them in the promised land. And why did He do it? Well, He tells us again and again, because He had set His love upon them. Not because they were greater, not because they were wiser, not because they would do great things, but because He was merciful. And so the planting of Israel into the promised land was a grand display of His mercy. And so there's a memory of that establishing work. We can think as well of the New Testament church. It's a pleasant thing. It's encouraging to think how Paul, who was Saul, was converted, who was breathing out threatenings and curses to the church, but the Lord converted him, brought him to faith, and then sent him forth. And we love to look at our maps with wonder at times. Look everywhere he went and preached the gospel. And we read of great conversions where there were thousands added to the church at Pentecost and other such occasions as the church advanced, we get beyond the Scriptures and we read of the persecution that fell in waves upon the early church and yet their perseverance and how they were sustained and the Lord brought them and settled them. These are encouraging things to remember the Lord's mighty work. But a pleasant memory is not just the establishing, but you'll notice the flourishing of God's church. That branch thou madest strong for thyself. There are times that 
Perhaps we've planted something or we've bought a, a sapling and we've planted it and we have to make sure that the roots are cared for. The water is not too much, not too little, that it's you know, protected, that the deer don't get to it, doesn't get pushed over, and so it's tied down and all these things to make sure that this little plant would grow up and flourish. Some of us have witnessed that. We've seen trees perhaps at an old house that we lived at and were planted when we were but a child. And we visit there now just driving by and we see this massive tree that's grown over decades. And we wonder at that. Well, that's like the church. Remember, Israel had its difficulties and trials, but then it comes to flourish under David and even more so under Solomon. So you think of the descriptions Whereas he's making, you know, gold like silver and silver like brass and brass like common rock. You know, such a flourishing. Every Israelite had his own vineyard. You know, these things that flourish there under the descendant of David is truly astounding. Such that even royalty from other nations would come and be impressed by two things. One, the wisdom of Solomon and two, the flourishing grandeur of his court and kingdom, that they have their breath taken from them. Such is the glory of such a sight. It's good for us to think what a rich flourishing of the Lord's cause. We can think the same with reference to nearer history. We love to read about the Reformation We read, of course, about those trials that were early on and persecution and martyrs that suffered, but then we read of it being established and settled and we see these networks of cities and we see missionaries sent forth and we see places that did not have the light of the gospel receive the light of the gospel and convert it. We read of our own nation after the Second Reformation as individuals are coming over and preaching the gospel and into the 17th century or the 18th century where the revivals come And great things are done. And we read in biographies and histories and we're struck not just by the numbers, but more impressed by the spirituality of those eras. You read, for instance, you know, take someone like Martin Luther where he would pray for two hours every day. You say, well, that's interesting. You know, that's difficult. And yet, he speaks as well of all of the other things that he had to do, of teaching, of correspondence, of discipline cases, of visiting, and saying as is well cited to Melanchthon on occasion on a particularly pressing time, he would say, I need another hour in prayer. You read of John Welsh of Ayr, who would pass whole nights in the midst of reviving days, weeping on the floor of his cold room, his wife being concerned that he might perish Such was the labor of his earnest desire. And she would say, come back into bed. And he would say, how can I with the souls of thousands weighing upon my own soul? See, these were days of spiritual flourishing. We read of the revival of the Kirk of Shots. You know, hundreds converted at one sermon. And yet what's more astounding is not just the number, but the clear testimony that decades passed and the evidence of the spirituality of those converted at that time were still thriving. You read of Richard Baxter, and whatever differences we have, he was a faithful pastor, and people could visit a hundred years later and say Kidderminster was still a place where there was spiritual earnestness. 
Brethren, these are things that are good for us to remember. They're good for us to remember. That's history. That really took place. Men, women, children were once in darkness. They were converted. They were converted and sanctified, and they flourished and spread. Our own denomination was uh, in its founding, preceded by great revivals, which flourished for seasons. These are rich and satisfying things. And you'll notice that this is in the mind of the psalmist. This vineyard which thy right hand hath planted, and the branch that thou madest strong for thyself. And is not that the true pleasant memory? It wasn't that they were made an institute, institution of social change. It's not that they were made great in prominence in the world. It's that they were made strong for God. Their whole orientation was to God. Their fixation was upon God. Their speech was of God. Their desires were for God. All that they were, were oriented, was oriented toward God. Truly, they were flourishing. Children, you can see this sometimes when certain flowers, like the sunflower, for instance, it actually, the head will turn with the sun. And so there in the dawning, it's up and looking, as it were, and as the sun moves, it actually moves toward the sun. And that's the strength of grace in the Christian. The Christian's orientation is wherever the Lord is, that's what I want. Seasons of flourishing are pleasant things indeed. But notice, secondly, the psalmist considers a present misery. And the experience is quite significant. This vine which did flourish is now burned. It's cut down. It's not talking about, remember, a literal vine, but rather the people of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's wasted and it's trampled underfoot. Notice just before in verse 13, the boar out of the wood doth waste it. It's not like, oh, this is a pleasant thing to play in. It's destroying. Right now in Missouri, in certain places, you know, wild pigs, boars are ruinous to farmers' fields. All sorts of money is being poured in by the state to try and prevent and extirpate these creatures which destroy the harvest. Well, that's what's going on in the church. Something foreign that does not indeed uh, support the flourishing of a field is actually destroying it. And don't we see that today? You've heard numbers, you know, all which confirm anecdotes you and I are aware of, you know, uh, sites that we perceive. We look and we see the church has been brought into a desolate condition. Notice the language of verse 16. It's burned with fire and cut down. They perish. This is the experience. We sense that. You know, we read of John Knox and we wonder at his uh, use by the Lord in reforming Scotland. But if you read before 1560, and you read in the 40s and 50s, his life was one riddled with great trial and heartache. And his earnest prayer was, Give me Scotland, else I die. I long for Scotland to receive the Evangel. I long for Scotland to know the true God. I long for Scotland to see that Roman harlot thrown out and the purity of Christ set up. I long for Scotland to know the purity of worshiping so holy a God and my soul is eaten up by it. Well, brethren, to some extent, we know that experience. 
We pray, give us Missouri, give us St. Louis, give us the United States. And we sense sincerely, if you don't, my soul is shriveling up. I can't stomach it. I so long for it, and I don't experience it. And then we think, well, with a little prayer, it'll come. And then a little prayer turns into a lot of prayer, and we don't see it come. There were occasions in John Knox's ministry where as he was exiled on Europe, the continent, he would come to France and he was invited back over and saying, you know, Master Knox, there's a good wind in the air and their times have now come for you to return only to be greeted there at the port to say, turn back, the cause has shifted. You can think of what that means. He'd leave Geneva He'd come there to the port in France and he'd be ready to head over only to be agreed with head back. All of that would devour him, eat him up. And this is something of what the psalmist and we likewise experience. But what's striking is that though there's a bore, though there's a fire, though there is this uh, great uh, misery, notice again in verse 16, they perish at, thy, at the rebuke of thy countenance. So the branch, verse 15, that thou madest strong for thyself is now burned with fire, cut down and perishing at whose rebuke? God's. God is the one who has lowered the hedge. God is the one who has sent the boar. God is the one who has kindled the fire and has brought about this misery upon the church. There is that sermon or group of sermons by Nathaniel Vincent, God's Terrible Voice, which was the title of his sermons during the midst of the plague and fires that came upon them. He's saying, look around. God is sending these testimonies that He is not pleased with the corruptions of our day. He's seeking to humble us. But think of this. So soon as this word, this sermon perhaps, if it were at all circulated, people would say, well, that's making a mountain out of a molehill. You know, let's not get too upset about some of these things. After all, churches exist. The Bible's read. Gospels preach. All of that's true. Brethren, think of this. The, the great plagues and the great fire of London came at the height of Puritanism in England. So you think of those names. This was in the season of their ministries. They weren't one who were given to false alarm. They were searching the Scriptures saying, these things come from the Lord. Why are they doing that? Because here's the simple thing. They were students of the Scripture. They saw the connection. Here the Lord says, if my people turn in this way, this is going to come. If my people neglect this, I'm going to bring judgment. And here the psalm tells us, these things come, the low time of the church has come at God's bidding. God has brought it to pass. Well, why is it that God has brought it to pass? This is what we need to realize. We need to get this in our minds clearly. Our fight, in one sense, is not with you know, the, the liberals of our day. It's not that we're looking at political liberals or theological liberals and saying, you know, that's the ones that we need to deal with. We need to deal with God. That's the church's focus. The church's focus is that God is a controversy with us. 
the church's reality needs to come face to face with this. It's not that these instruments are really the thing we have to focus on. It's that God is using these instruments to say to His people, humble yourself. So think of our own nation. We talked a little bit about this. There's all the outcry, rightly so, of all the second table offenses. You know, murder, sexuality, impurity, all those things. Totally right. Where is the single voice in so-called conservative politics that says this? The Sabbath day is publicly desecrated. There's not. And Christians in America content themselves and say, well, separation of church and state. You know, we're not uh, uh, an ecclesiastically established uh, nation. We don't do that. And we say, okay, that may be true, what our nation is, but what do the Scriptures say? Does God say, well, the Sabbath is just for the church? Does God say, well, the Sabbath is just for the people who believe it's for them? And he says, no. Because when was the Sabbath instituted? It wasn't instituted in Exodus 20. It wasn't instituted in Deuteronomy 5. It wasn't instituted Exodus 19, 18, 17, and so on. It was instituted in Genesis. At the end of the creation, the Lord establishes one day in seven for all mankind, not Jew, not Gentile, all the descendants of mankind. And so it's not just, well, you know, the, the nation isn't observing the Lord's Supper. Well, the Lord's Supper is for the church. But the world is desecrating the Sabbath day. And then here's all the more concern. There are churches who promote it. There are churches who say it's fine. And in fact, it's wrong to be concerned about these things. What's the point? The Lord is saying, my issue is with the church. And it's for the church to humble itself and to say, yes, there are sins in the world, egregious sins. Yes, there are sins in the nations, wicked sins. But in the church, there are these public displays. And so why would it not be but that God would pursue us and say, my controversy is with you. Isn't this the case, parents? You think of this for a moment. You go out in public, go to a park on a Friday or Saturday, you go to the grocery store with your children, and you see the misbehavior of other kids. And it saddens you. You're thinking to yourself, well, that's not good, that's not right. The way that that child spoke to his mother is, is illegitimate, it's not right, that needs to be corrected. But in essence, you tolerate it, unless there was something so flagrant that necessity were laid upon you to say, this can't happen. You know, you see, for instance, a child take his fist and start beating his mother. You better act, right? You have a moral responsibility to do something about that. But if your own children speak to you amiss, you don't say, well, you know, this is just the way it is. You sit down with them and say, this will not be tolerated. There's warning, there's discipline if needed, there's correction, and if needs be, there's even a raising of the severity of discipline if it continues. Brethren, how long has the United States had a faithful church? Well, you can go back to the 1600s. 
1600s, there were people who were coming over preaching the gospel. There were colonies that observed psalm singing. There were colonies that observed the Sabbath day. There were colonies that observed the purity of worship and so on. These things were once precious. You can go back to Presbyterianism and instruments had no place and psalms were sung and the Sabbath honored and preaching of the gospel fervent and piety in the home flourishing. These things took place. It's not as if we're on the cusp of entering into you know, the uh, uh, great outdoors of the world. We live in a nation that has had the leaven of the gospel for generations. Scotland has been a nation even more so than ours, which was reformed and uh, publicly countenanced and uh, honoring the Lord. And so we see these things and we see the cause of such misery and need to come under it. So it's right for us to say, well, our politicians are a problem. They are. It's right for us to point at the Constitution and say there are massive problems with the Constitution. There are. It's right for us to look at, you know, the crazy liberals and say they've got problems. And they do. But we need to realize that we ourselves, with our brethren, likewise have cooled in our affection. Think of that. The Lord comes to the first of the churches in Revelation 2, commending, 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 yet I have this against thee. Thou hast left thy first love. What does he say? Repent, do the first works, or else I will come and remove your lampstand. Think of that. There was no heresy. There was no you know, egregious sin. It was simply the fact that the hearts had cooled. Well, brethren, what happens when hearts cool? It starts to then entertain errant doctrine, false practices, and other such things which you see elsewhere reproved. We may feel, well, you know, I'm free of that scandal and that scandal, that may be so, but then we have to assess and say, yet is there not a controversy with me that I'm content to keep up the outward and yet neglect the inward things of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because though the church would say not a big deal, here's the thing, Christ says that's a big deal. It's not just some pietistic mind that's interested in like finding out the needle in the haystack that may or may not be legitimate. It's Christ who says, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Your love for me has cooled and I have a controversy with you. So brethren, the reason for the misery the church faces is the church's own sin. The church's easing into prioritizing the pleasures of this world, which ultimately lead to the open defiance of public sin. Think of what the Lord warned His people of in Deuteronomy, preparing them to go into the promised land. He said, when it is that you eat and are full and are fat, then take heed lest you forget me. What is it that happened? To the detail. They flourish, they're full, they're rich, and then they forget God and they cool. What's our culture? It's rich and flourishing. And yet, the affection of the Lord is indeed lessening. Well, finally then, a desired mercy. We see this all throughout this psalm, but notice particularly the earnest desire is that God will return. There's a foundation for this 
namely that it concerns God, right? This is your vine. This is your people. We are the people you brought out, planted us here. You are our God. So the foundation of this appeal is that look what good people we are. It's not look how deserving we are. It's not look how earnest we are. It's rather, this is your people. This is the vine you brought out of Egypt. This is the vine you've planted. This is the vine you've caused to grow. This is your vine. And brethren, this is our need. So you think of Christ when Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjonas, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this to you. In which he says, The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, Peter, you're such a great apostle, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against you. He doesn't say, you know what, the apostles are so strong and mighty, they're not going to prevail against them. But rather against it, the profession of Christ. Christ is the warrior. Christ is the one upon the horse, the sword proceeding from his mouth. He's the David that goes forth into the valley, conquers Goliath, and then the people are strengthened and share in the victory. Our great need is for the glorious King to whom all praise uh, is owed, that He would take up His cause. This is His cause. This is the foundation of our hope. We are your people. This is your vine. And so for your sake, be pleased to bless. Do we not have this foundation of plead? Whose name is on you from your baptism? Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Whose name is upon the church but the Lord Jesus Christ? And we take this up and say, God, this is your vine. It's your work for your glory. Arise and remember us. It's what we sang earlier in Psalm 67. Lord, bless and pity us. Shine on us with thy face. But it's not so that we could be happy and rich and full, but it's rather so that the nations would know your salvation. Isn't it striking that the more that the world, even reformed world, becomes cool in its affections and makes peace with the entertaining spectacle of our age, the earnest, hissing, hot zeal for the conversion of souls is almost nowhere to be found. It's rare to find people earnest for the conversion of souls. It's laughed at. Brethren, I was with a believer who literally mocked, well, they make uh, the preaching of the gospel about conversion of souls. I say, well, what is it about? This is the point. This is an elder in a so-called Reformed church who has that view that preaching shouldn't be earnest, that preaching shouldn't be confronting sinners about their sin, that preaching shouldn't be earnestly desiring, but rather it's for, you know, this you know, reordering of society and so on. Well, we don't deny that the preaching of the gospel has that effect and that men in their various offices need to submit to the Lord. But that's not what the Reformation was about. The Reformation reformed these things, but still saw that even in societies rightly reformed, there was the need of conversion of sinners. Think of this, both Calvin and Geneva, Luther and Wittenberg, and you know, various men in, in, in Zurich, uh, Bollinger and Oikolampadius and others, would seri- they would train men who would come to them for uh, theological instruction and preaching. 
and they would literally send them back to their places knowing that within, at most, three weeks' time they would die. Again and again this would happen. And the men who went knew that. They're going to devote themselves for three to four years of study so that in a span of three weeks' time they could preach the gospel and die. They were earnest that the gospel would go forth and reach sinners and that sinners would be converted. You read the martyrs' testimonies as they're about to be kindled afire and they're pleading with God, hold this not against them, but let the gospel rise up and vindicate your cause. This is the foundation. It's your cause. It's your interest. It's your kingdom. Brethren, here's the great blessing for us. The mercy desired comes to us through Christ. This is the petition. Let thy hand, verse 17, God's hand of blessing, God's hand of strength, whatever will come to us will come from that hand. How does it come to us though? Let it be upon the man of thy right hand, upon the Son of Man, whom thou madest strong for thyself. Brethren, we don't have time this today to do this, but notice a connection for a moment. The vineyard he made strong for himself. And now it's the Son of Man whom he made strong for himself. There's something in between that's not so clearly stated, but is connected. The people which God planted and made strong for Himself, were burned. They were consumed. How does the blessing of God come to us? But through the man of His right hand, the Son of Man, who is also consumed. This is something that is the Scripture's testimony. All of the blessings of God come to us through Christ. So think of this. When at the Lord's Supper He says, this cup is the New Testament in My blood. What does that mean? All of the promises, all of the riches, all of the blessings of salvation are stored up. But now that I, the testator, die, the inheritance is given over to you. Every blessing the church and individual Christian receives comes because and through and by Christ. This then leads to The spiritual quickening. Notice it doesn't say in verse 18, so will not we be poor. So will not we be attacked. So will we not be sad. But rather, so will not we go back from Thee. That's the desire. My desire is that we as the church would be in allegiance, bound to You, and never turn back. How does that come? It comes only through Christ. It comes only as God blesses by Christ. This is why the preaching of the Gospel is so central in the church's life. Because if any blessing should be enjoyed by us, it must be that we know Christ. Christ has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are bound up in Him. Everything the church needs is in Christ and by Him conveyed to us. And so how do men in the church spend their days? Well, it's rare to find someone who spends their days with Christ, isn't it? It's easy to find Christians who spend their days following this sport or this hobby or this pastime. 
It's hard to find Christians whose speech speaks of Christ. It's easy to find Christians who talk about this sort of abstract doctrine and this abstract practice. It's hard to find Christians who talk about Christ. It's hard to find men and women who cannot help but speak of the Lord Jesus. It's hard to find people who are content with nothing else but the Lord Jesus as made known in the Scriptures. And this is what's being sought. I want blessing through Christ so that I would never turn from Christ. That I would never cease communing with Christ. Quicken us and we will call upon Thy name. Do you know what's absent in all of this is numbers. What's absent from all of this is power. What's absent from all of this is grandeur in the sight of men and women. What is earnest is we need God and we want Him through Christ to make it so. Brethren, as we close then, there's a need to grieve over the sins of our day, the national sins, the church sins, family sins, personal sins. All of these are needed to be considered and brought up to God in petition. But as we do, we have to remember that this is a means to a greater desire. That in confessing and humbling ourselves, the Lord would exalt us in Christ. So though we want more churches, though we want more ministers, though we want more students, though we want more men and women and children and so on, yet it's not just the number we want, it's that we want them to want Christ. We want Christ to have all, Christ to be glorified, Christ to be praised, Christ to be loved, Christ to be spoken of, Christ to be delighted in, Christ to be lived upon, Christ to be longed for. That's what we desire. Why? Because there is no strength in the church except that strength is in Christ. That's what we need. That's what we want. So all of these numbers that we've considered, we won't be happy if in 10 years' time, it says, you know, out of 260 million U.S. adults, 260 million say they're Christian now. What does that matter if that's just a formal badge without, as it were, the earnest commitment to Christ. We don't just want, well, you know what, in answer to your prayer, you've got five students now in the seminary. Well, we could be encouraged, and certainly we'd thank God, but our earnest desire is that those five students would be made earnest for Christ, longing for Christ. We say, well, in our congregation, you know, we want three new families to join and so on. Well, that's fine, but what is that if they don't come yearning for Christ? but avenues by which our own souls are affected, cooled, and compromised. We want, we seek, and we implore the Lord that for Christ's sake He would quicken us so that we would not turn back from Him, that we would call upon Him and ever be His. Which, by the way, brethren, is exactly the foretaste of heaven. What we're praying for essentially is this. Thy kingdom come. And so may He bring His kingdom for Jesus' sake. Would you stand with me for prayer?